Yes, I appreciate that. Jesus was broken for us so that we could be fixed by him. Father, we thank you for these memorial moments to remember, and we thank you for every moment we can walk with you and you walk with us. Be with us now as we turn to your word and uh, learn from that so we can be your close and devoted followers. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to ask you a question this morning, and the question is this. Have you ever been on the awkward or the painful end of someone's favoritism? A time where they treated someone else in a kinder or nicer way than they did you? Or maybe the other vein where they ignored or mistreated you for just no particularly worthy or understandable reason. Have you ever been in that place of awkwardness and pain? I hope we can agree (laughs) that bearing the blunt of such favoritism is not an enjoyable thing. And if we don't enjoy it, and we know the Lord doesn't want it, we should move and strive to get rid of it. As we focus on James and Proverbs this summer, we turn to the words of James, the Lord's brother. Chapter 2 of his letter, realize he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And under this inspiration, his words have an authority about them, and his commands are binding upon us as believers and followers of Jesus. So when he says something, we need to understand that it's important and that when we practice and follow it, it will make us a better follower and our church a better church. Follow me, if you will, from James chapter 2 as we begin at verse 1 in your Bible, in the pew Bible, or in the screen behind me. This is a place where if you have a modern translation, the paragraph may be titled something like, favoritism forbidden. Now, I have to warn us that uh, we might not like some of these strong words. (laughs) They may just seem a little meddling or a little too strong for us. But just because we don't like a portion of Scripture doesn't mean we can ignore it or that we should just skip over it or just think, well, I'll go to something different. So we need to listen carefully to the whole of Scripture including what James has to say in chapter 2 about favoritism being forbidden. Chapter 2, verse 1 of James. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man In filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and you say, oh, here's a really good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, oh, you you stand here or you come sit at my feet on the floor. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges of evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen the poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? 
But you and I, but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the name, the noble name of him to whom you belong? If, James says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin. And you are convicted by law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it, all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act, James commands, as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Webster defines favoritism as a display of unjust partiality or bias. It means to show partiality or preference to someone over someone else. Now it can mean the preferential and kind treatment of someone based upon the belief or possibility that they in turn will be able to do something for you or bless you or benefit you in some way. But it can also mean then the other side of the coin, the mistreatment or the exclusion of another person based upon such things as their social status, their appearance, their politics, their opinions, their preferences, their ideas, and the likes. Understand this about favoritism, friends. It is a decision that each of us makes. We decide to practice partiality and favoritism or not. This bias is an individual choice about the way we choose to treat one another in the Lord's family. Now you can call this evil, this sin, this thing that James forbids by many names or label. But we understand that it's present in the heart of the life of a believer is clearly forbidden. Now, however you name it, We'll come up with a lot of questions to ask the same thing about the Bible's ban on this unrighteous conduct. So we can ask the question this way. Why is favoritism forbidden? Or we could ask it this way. Why is partiality prohibited? Or again, we could say, why is conceit censured? Why is snobbery (laughs) scolded? Why is arrogance admonished? Why is rudeness rebuked? In whatever form you come up with the question, it needs an answer. And I want to share with you what I believe are three good reasons why the Bible is so strong in this condemnation of favoritism. Reason number one, the church is God's. The church is God's. He owns it. It is His. 
in the last verse of chapter 2 of Acts, after we've heard the birth of the church story and the church's immense and immediate growth in such magnificent numbers, the last part of verse 47 of Acts 2 says, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's focus on that concept that it is the Lord who adds to the church. It is certainly not you and me. It is his body. It is his family. And as such then, it is not ours to say who belongs or who doesn't or who we should treat properly and who we should mistreat or ignore. It is God's church. He is its owner. He birthed it on Pentecost. He has sustained it through the centuries. He has created it and maintained it as a mosaic of a blended mixture of people and cultures and backgrounds. The Lord added to their number, it says. And therefore, people that God has ushered and welcomed into his church are precious to him. And likewise, they should be precious and honored by us. If God has welcomed them, (laughs) who are we? To show them anything less than the kind of love that God has shown to us. Think of it this way. It's the Lord that adds, not you and me. God is the gatekeeper, if you will. The doorman. The key holder of his kingdom. And we could take it even one stretch further and maybe think of it this way. That God is the head bouncer who unlocks the velvet ropes and welcomes all who accept and obey his invitation to receive his son as Savior. It is God's church. And if somebody belongs to it, we have no right to treat them in any other way than a godly way. Paul further affirms this truth that it's God's church in his address to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He encourages those men who are leading the church there, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. He bought it. He purchased it. He paid a high price. God purchased each soul that is a part of his family. Jesus died for each one. It was the blood of Jesus that was the currency of this purchase. And it is what allowed each person who comes into his family to do just that. The same blood that made it possible for me to come in. The same blood that made it possible for you to come in. Makes it possible for everyone that he brings into his family. Sounds to me like we need to treat each other in that kind of a way. We look at the life of Jesus and we see that he showed no favoritism. He loved and he cared for everyone. But you know, as we look at his life and we see that as he spent time with and welcomed and loved on some of the worst sinners of his day, in treating them the way he did, he never compromised the truth. He never compromised God's standard. I love that verse in John's Gospel about the incarnation in chapter 1 and verse 14 where it concludes with the words, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Key phrase there. In fact, so key that back in January, as we started the year 2020, our brother Zach started us with a two-week sermon series all about how Jesus is our model and our example in this matter of how we deal with people. We see Jesus always upholding righteousness and balancing that righteousness with a perfect balance of grace and truth, with mercy and holiness. He showed love and kindness to all, but he always addressed the sin of his audience. He never forsook. He never lowered God's standard. He never compromised on God's truth. He treated people well with a welcome and acceptance, but he held them to the high standard of God. So this idea of not showing favoritism can't be treated as just welcoming anyone and everyone. We do need to maintain God's holiness while sharing his grace. Again, as Jesus did, we need to be full of grace and truth and find a good balance between those things. Jesus didn't just overlook sin and evil. He addressed it. And he followed a formula that uh, Paul later stated in Ephesians 4.15 when he said, Speaking the truth in love, truth in love. You see the same two elements. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Our Lord's balance of grace and truth is the perfect pattern for us today in the church. So we need to be full of both grace and truth. Both ingredients matter much. Both are essential. So may I encourage you, and myself as well, let's hold to our godly standards. Let's not lower them or compromising, but let's treat the people that he sends into our lives with love and kindness and grace. That's the balance that Jesus modeled That's the balance he commands for us to practice in our relationships as well. You know those words that Jesus spoke in Matthew 7, 12 that we refer to affectionately as the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It is God's church. He is its owner. And his command for us is to treat others the way we want to be treated. I opened with a question. Have you ever been on that awkward or painful side of favoritism? If you have, and I'm sure most of us have, (laughs) it's not fun. It's not enjoyable. And therefore, since we know we don't enjoy it, we shouldn't do it to one another. Reason number two that favoritism is forbidden and all those other questions there is that we live in a hostile world and we need each other. We need each other, friends. We don't need to be dividing and hurting. We need to be uniting and helping and blessing. Twice in these verses from the second chapter of James, he issues the command that forbids favoritism. In verse 1, he says, Believers, 
Don't show favoritism. I mean, those are just some of the clearest words of Scripture. Don't do this. Don't make this your practice. Don't make this your habit. Don't even make this your occasional error. Don't do it. Then in verse 9, he states that those who practice this kind of bigotry and prejudice and preference toward others sin. They sin. We sin. And we stand convicted. Now, twice in those nine verses, repeating that same command needs to tell us something, that God considers this rather important, that God considers this rather essential. And so we should pay attention to what is being said and take it as if it is of great importance as it is. Most every one of us want to feel included and welcome, don't we? We want to feel like we belong. It's part of our basic human nature to want to be accepted and to feel like we belong. It's part of our humanity that was implanted into us by the one in whose image we were made. In other words, by God. And therefore, any conduct, any behavior, any attitude that would thwart that God-given need or hurt another person cannot be right or godly because... We need to bless and help each other. Let's look at this another way. Think of the church as God's army. And God's army needs strong soldiers. Not injured ones or weakened ones. And if our self-centered conduct has some time or another or continues to harm and destroy others... The whole body then is weakened. And when the army of the Lord suffers in one part, every part suffers. God's work suffers if wounded and weary soldiers that have been hurt by other people are filling the ranks. Yes, we need each other. We live in a hostile world. Our enemy is out to destroy and harm us. It just doesn't make sense that we do anything that would give him a foothold or even the slightest point of injury. Not only our enemy, but we are surrounded by a large and hostile crowd in this world where many are dead set to crush us and inflict any and all damage they can against God's kingdom and his followers. You know, you know it's true. It's a tough environment out there. It's unfriendly. It's hostile. And in that kind of environment, we need each other. And we need each other healthy and strong for the fight. As most brothers do, my two sons would often pick fights with one another and try to get under each other's skin, which in turn got under dad's skin. I didn't enjoy those moments at all. One of the reasons I didn't enjoy it, because I knew that once they started, it was going to continue to escalate and escalate and escalate until one of them either got hurt physically or got their feelings hurt in some way or another. And as I would address these scrapes that they would have, it's a fancy way of saying what I would give them the lecture following that thing, you know, like parents do. I would often lecture them that fighting within the family was not a helpful or beneficial thing. 
And I urge them instead to recognize the fact that all the rest of the world out there is so hostile and there are so many struggles that wouldn't it be far better that they not choose to fight among each other but to live at peace with one another? I don't know if all those lectures ever did any good or not for them. But I do know that I particularly was glad I got to speak my mind and share my heart with them, even as I'm doing with you now. Any kind of infighting, any kind of thing that damages another believer is useless. It can bring about no good. Ignoring others who are a part of the same family we are because of God's welcome is more than just silly. It is sin, James says. It does not please God, and it does not advance his kingdom. The psalmist understands this when in Psalm 133, he tells us the thoughts of God when he says how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Favoritism and unity are not equals. They are direct opposites. And so if God looks upon his family and sees us unified and thinks it's pleasant and good, that's what we need to strive for. That's why favoritism is forbidden. Our unity, our proper treatment of one another delights God. He finds it good and pleasant. Along with Paul's words, we need to keep in mind those prayers of Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane. Our getting along in John 17 was the subject of his earnest prayers just before he would be arrested and suffer the ultimate agony of the cross. Jesus prayed for us that we wouldn't show favoritism, rather that we would enjoy unity. I don't want to disappoint him. I don't want to disrail what he has in mind for his church. We need each other. And Paul comes into this the conversation as well. So we read from those familiar words of Philippians 2 when he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in, commun- in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you looking to the interest of others. We need each other. And this is how we should treat each other. Reason number three, that favoritism is forbidden. James says that it violates the royal law. In chapter 2, verse 8 says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. He's already expressed it in the negative. Don't show favoritism. If you practice favoritism, you sin and you stand convicted of that sin. Then he turns it into the positive and says, if you do this, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Now this is a tie-in to those words of Jesus. You remember the lawyer asked him the question about who, what's the greatest command? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer turned and asked Jesus that next question, who is my neighbor? Jesus makes here the connection between favoritism and the answer provided to the lawyer's question. 
He answered the lawyer's question. Love your neighbor as yourself. James calls that the royal law. And he says that when we practice such a lifestyle and conduct, we are doing the right thing. Notice that he says, if you really keep it. You see, this can't just be a matter of of saying the right words and acting a different way. This can't just be a matter of having a poster on our wall or art on our wall or our Bibles on our coffee tables or a cross hanging from the windshield of our car. It can't be just any of that facade stuff. It's got to be what's truly in here and what's coming out of here. It's got to be who we really are. The absence of bigotry and arrogance and partiality must thoroughly represent who we are and how we act. The absence of snobbery and favoritism put us in the camp of doing right. James continues this comparison as he equates favoritism with such sins as adultery and murder. Now there's no question that those are sinful conducts. And so by comparison, he says there's no doubt about the sin of favoritism. He said if you break one law, you broke it all. He strengthens his point by saying what he knows to be true. That the action of any sin, yes, just even one sin, labels us, identifies us as lawbreakers. That one point of stumbling from God's plan makes us guilty of sin before God. He concludes this section of Scripture in verses 12 and 13 saying, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James completes this section of his letter with some excellent motivation for treating others in the church as we should for not letting favoritism find any place in the church. He points out the freedom we can have, the freedom we can know if we take the time to look within ourselves, examine our words and our actions very carefully. Think about the audience that James is writing to, those Christians, those Jewish believers who had been scattered from their homes, driven from their homes by persecution, who were facing hardships, extreme difficulties, And so when he said, I've got an idea for you, a way you can know some freedom, and that is to practice the royal law. That would have sounded very sweet to them, and they would have paid attention carefully. You see what he does there. He motivates us and tells us that we have a choice in this matter. That he And he presents kind of two scenarios, if he wills, there in those last few verses. One of the scenarios is this. We can live and conduct ourselves in a way where we show no mercy to others. And by this he means we practice the favoritism. And if we do that, we will be judged without or apart from God's mercy. I don't find that a very appealing possibility or prospect. But the second scenario he gives us is this. He says, be kind... Include everyone, show no favoritism, show mercy instead toward others in the faith, and God's mercy will be upon you. I want to be the object and the subject of God's mercy, not his judgment.
Now, if you've been keeping up on the daily Bible reading suggestions that we've had this summer, you also can remember maybe that the writers of the Proverbs also weigh in on the damage, the danger, the evil of partiality and favoritism. And they do it in a, such a practical and blunt and direct and straightforward ways. And they echo the same strong message against this unkind and improper attitude and behavior of favoritism. Proverbs 18.5 says, It is not good to be partial to the wicked and so deprive the innocent of justice. Chapter 21 verse 3 says, To do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than act sacrifice. This is a common theme of Old Testament scripture that God would rather have our hearts than to have our, object, our, our sacrifices and our demonstrations of worship. Chapter 24, verse 3 of Proverbs says, These are also sayings of the wise. To show partiality and judging is not good. Favoritism is a forbidden thing within the church. Well-known pastor and author Max Lucado read some words of his that give us helpful things from his personal experience as he admits and confesses to struggling with his own problems of favoritism and snobbery toward others. And he tells us, he admits to us, he confesses to us that his favoritism shows up most often in the, his judgment and his exclusion of others based upon their appearance. That's his struggle. He tends to show favoritism toward people that just don't look quite like he does. People who look differently. And so he says this. <laughs> I love this sentence. Talking about these people he tends to treat unfavorably. You know, I may not be too keen on the way they look. <laughs> but I love the one to whom they look. Do you understand what he's saying? is that he tries his best and he uses this motivation to get past this favoritism that he would tend toward by saying, well, I might not really love the way they look, but I love them because they look to the same God I do. <clears throat> Go back to Acts chapter 2. It is the Lord that adds to his church, not you and me. I love that example. Our preferences need to yield to God's ownership, to God's inclusion of all who come to him in faith. There's no room for the improper conduct among God's people of favoritism. And James, Proverbs, and other scripture as well is strong in forbidding it. So I close OCC with this question. How are we doing? I ask myself that question. How am I doing? I hope you'll ask yourself the same question as well. And when we ask the question, let's listen. And let's hear God say it's just not right to do such things. And our family can be so much better if we will work hard to eliminate and remove every shred of the sin of favoritism. Friends, God loves us all. And since he loves us all, we should love all as well. We are his family. Every member belongs because it is God 
that is added them. And therefore, every member deserves the same kind of grace and kindness that God demonstrates toward us. Tried to convey this morning that this is a very serious business and that any form of favoritism that may come from us displeases God. It displeases Him because only He determines who belongs and He welcomes who is a part of the church. It displeases God because it hurts others and we need each other from God's family. And it displeases God because it is sin and it is failure to keep the royal law. I want to declare to you for myself and I pray for you as well that it's time for us to tell such prejudices, mistreatments of this sort, tell it bye-bye and don't come back. We'll be a happier and healthier church when it's gone. And we'll be a much better witness in our community as well. I don't know how much you struggle with it. I know I do. I'll confess that to you. But even in saying whatever your level of struggle was, wherever that favoritism may tend to rear its ugly head in your life, I know the one who can help. Because he did it all his life on earth. It's Jesus. And this morning, if you're here and you don't have a relationship with him, that's the first step. Become a part of the family of Jesus. Let him become your Savior and Lord. And then with his help, say, God, I need to tackle this problem. I need to tackle this sin. And I need your help to get rid of it. Or if you're here as a member and faithful attender and you're struggling with this, let Jesus be the one who comes by your side and reminds you that he didn't do it. He wants you to avoid it as well. Invite him. Welcome him. Try to be like him. If you've got a decision to make, As we stand and sing our song of invitation this morning, would you make your way forward, please?